At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast. I'm feeling very privileged to be hosting today's show. Many of you will have already spotted that I am not David Nutt, the usual host of this podcast. But in fact, I am David Badcock, the Chief Executive Officer of Drug Science. So the Drug Science Podcast has been a tremendous success story for us over the last three years or so. I think we've recorded something like, uh, well, over 70 shows. and We've had literally hundreds of thousands of listeners since we began. So it's a great honour to be taking over as host for this one-off special. And the reason for that is because today we will be talking all about our major project on medical cannabis otherwise known as Project 2021, or in fact, T21, as we now call it. I'm joined by my wonderful colleagues, Professor Michael Linsky, who is the Chief Research Officer here at Drug Science, and Alkioni Athenasu Fukuli, who is our Dedicated Research Officer for T21. So, Michael, Alkioni, welcome. Thanks. Hello. Good to see you both on the call. This is just like a, us having a meeting, as we do pretty much every single day. So, you know, very used to uh, speaking to you guys. So we're going to talk all about T21, and we're going to talk about some of the really interesting findings that we are now starting to show from the project. Uh, we're going we're gonna to discuss why this is such an important thing to do. But before doing that, as always, I think it's really good to just understand a little bit more about our own backgrounds and you know just why we why we've come to this point, why we have arrived at working at drug science, what got us interested, where your work has taken you, uh, anything that you think might be interesting uh, to speak about. So Alkioni, I'm going to start with you. What got you to being on this podcast with Michael and myself today? So I have studied clinical neuroscience and I have been working in clinical research for the past five years. I was always fascinated by the brain and particularly altered states of consciousness, which can occur spontaneously or be induced by substances. So my specific interest in psychedelic research and cannabis began when I attended a lecture by David Nutt while I was studying for my master's at UCL. It really was a pivotal moment for me as for the for the first time I realized that my personal interest could be turned into an actual career. Up until that moment, being involved in psychedelic research and cannabis research seemed almost like a like a distant dream, something that would not really be possible. I was completely blown away by the potential of uh, psychedelics and cannabis for therapeutic benefits. So I started learning more and more about them. I read all of David Nutt's books and basically any book that I could find on, on psychedelics and attended lots of webinars. And then at some point, soon enough, there was a job opening at Drug Science. So I immediately applied and the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history, indeed. That was about 
what, two years ago, I think? Was it Alkiani? Yeah, like almost two years now. Been with us uh, for a long time, which is great. We're absolutely delighted that, you, that you've joined us. And I think as many people, it's the inspiration from David Nutt that really gets people interested in the type of work that we do. So great that you're here with us. Michael, how about you? You're, you're from the other side of the world. Yeah, well, as soon as I start speaking, people normally pick up that I'm from New Zealand. I've been an academic. I've had positions in Australia, the US and the UK. A lot of my work has been focused on drug use and addiction, and I think I've been drawn to that as an interest because there are so many different facets to it. You can study drug use as a neuroscientist or as a political scientist and I think to really get an understanding of the area, you do actually need to have input and be talking to people from all sorts of different areas. So it's a multidisciplinary nature that attracted me. The role that I typically play in different collaborations is as a sort of data guy. I trained originally in psychology and then epidemiology. So I'm used to handling large data sets, including longitudinal data and clinical outcome data, such as what we've got with T21. You've actually been with drug science for quite a long time, I think, Kemi, because you, you have been a member of our scientific committee, what, since, since the start of drug science, was that, or was that... No, it was more recently. It was, I think, about 2016 after I met Dave Nutt at a conference in Berlin. So there you go, Dave Nutt again, inspiring, inspiring people to uh, to take up looking at looking at the effects of drugs and doing more research in this in this fascinating area. Before going on, David, would you mind speaking a little yourself about how you've got into this field? Yes, of course. So I, I actually came to drug science because I did some work with David Nutt, and we're going back about probably 15 years now, where we we worked on um, this project around uh, helping people to overcome the barriers to treatment for hepatitis C, particularly in people who had problematic drug use, injecting drug use, uh, basically. So, So I met David from there. But actually, my interest in the drugs field goes back further than that. I've worked in drug treatment services for something like 15 years or so before I came to drug science. We designed and developed better services for people who had very severe dependency on drugs. Uh, people who often at the very bottom of the, the ladder in terms of you know where, where they could go, living on the streets or in hostels, very little support available for them. I helped to, to deliver those services to, to help those people. And all during that time, I really kind of started to understand how drug policy and our general approach to people who use drugs was in fact not helping those people is just making their their chances of overcoming their problems much much harder and drug policy really was exacerbating the problem rather than making it better and during that time i kind of learned more and more i spoke to more and more people who who were affected by drugs from one way or another and really felt that you know we need to do something about it and so, so a combination of that and having met David and the opportunity arose to join drug science, that's what led me here. Uh, and I have to say, it's um, drug science is a wonderful organisation. It's a great pleasure to be a part of it. And there's lots of really good work that we're doing, like Project 2021, which is what we're here to talk about. 
Would you mind telling us uh, a little bit more, David, about how T21 happened since you've been here from the beginning? Yeah, thank you, Jürgen. That's a good, that's a, I think that's a really good place to start. So as if people will probably know if you listen to this podcast, uh, if we go back to when medical cannabis was effectively legalized, that was back in November 2019, that was, it, it was legalized because there was a huge amount of pressure from the parents of children with severe epilepsy, so very ill children who had severe epilepsy, and their parents knew that the only treatment that really helped them was cannabis. That was the only, the only thing that really worked and was much more effective, it would appear, than a more typical anti-epileptic drugs. Uh, so there was a huge amount of campaigning that happened, uh, you know, the, that four or five years ago. The law changed and at Drug Science, we were really pleased to see that that law changed because, you know, we are very aware of you know, the effectiveness of uh, medical cannabis. And we hear lots of stories and lots of people telling us, uh, you know, this is the case. And in fact, we've always, we've always campaigned for, uh, you know, the, a change of law, a change of policy to allow medical cannabis to be prescribed to, uh, to the people who need it. But what we also saw once the law changed was that actually nothing else had really changed. Technically, medical cannabis was able to be prescribed by specialist doctors. But that was really just a technicality. It wasn't really happening. It wasn't, you know, we didn't really see any any prescribing going on. And certainly from the NHS point of view, the NHS, and still today, only have a very, very narrow range of medical cannabis products that can be prescribed to a very narrow range of conditions. And, and in fact, therefore, you know, a lot of people weren't getting medical cannabis where they thought they needed to. And so we we decided we needed to do something about it. We decided that we needed to create a patient registry. And the purpose of it was twofold. One was to to kind of to help hopefully make it more accessible for patients, so uh, people could access medical cannabis through the private sector. This is not not on the NHS through the private sector. Make it more accessible. Make it more available uh, to be prescribed. Um, at the same time, and this is kind of the really crucial part, is to is to be able to collect the health outcome data as patients are prescribed. So, 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 so essentially, the registry tracks the health outcomes or the health improvements or any adverse events from patients as they are prescribed medical cannabis. Because otherwise, this if we didn't do this, it wasn't going to happen. Nobody else was going to do this. So the, those two things, that's why we created Project 2021. Essentially, it's a, it's a patient registry. It's an observational study. And I think Michael will probably talk more about that, explain more about that in a second. But that, that's why we created the project. We now have a big database of uh, patient-reported outcome data, which we are starting to look into, starting to really get some interesting information from. And our hope, our hope, our aim is that the NHS will use that data to uh, to develop better guidelines, better policies for and better accessibility for medical cannabis. So I'm going to ask Michael. This is a this is a very broad opening question for you. Does cannabis work? Wow, you could have warned me about that one. <laughs> I um, thought I did already. <laughs> I, I think the evidence is emerging that it does work. I mean, firstly, one thing, and even though I'm a numbers guy, I'd like to point it to the 
you know, large number of really compelling case stories that exist, certainly with child epilepsy, but with a number of other conditions as well, where people really experience almost sort of life-changing improvements in their health and well-being. There is a growing number, because of course what's happened in the UK with legalisation is part of an international trend. So there's an increasing number of observational studies very similar to T21, which are collecting information and reporting results very similar to what we'll be talking about today, which do show these improvements across really quite a broad range of chronic conditions. So if you were after a one-word answer, it would have been yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something that we, we as I said before, we we see and hear every day stories from people who tell us that medical cannabis is really working for them in a whole number of different ways. And that's what we are, that's what we are proving through Project 2021. So Al Keone, do you want to tell us a bit more, just, just briefly, about how the project works? If you're a patient, you know, what, what's the process there? How does it work? Yeah. So patients usually find about find out about the project through our website. So on our website, we have a list of our participating clinics, and then patients can make a direct appointment with the clinic and ask them to register them on T21. From that point onwards, patients receive some questionnaires through email, and they need to complete these questionnaires every three months so that we can track the uh, their progress on while they're taking their medical cannabis treatment. So patients usually receive questionnaire that is specific to their primary condition. And then there is some questionnaires that are generic for all patients. And these these track quality of life, mood and depression, and sleep quality. So at each follow-up, patients give us information, provide their data on on how they they have been doing since they started their medical cannabis treatment. That's great. And so do you, do you want to tell us how... How is things going so far in terms of the numbers of patients that we've got? And just to give so our listeners get an idea of, you know, how far we've come. Because we, we've been running the project, I think, since August 2020, I think, is when we first we got our first few patients in. So, you know, we're coming on to three years, unbelievably, now. <laughs> it's been three years. So how are we doing, Alkyoni? So we've managed to get uh, more than 3,500 patients, which really is, uh, is a great number. These patients have completed their initial consultation. So we have baseline data for all of these patients. And then at the moment, we have more than 1,000 patients that have completed their first year follow-up. And then we're starting to see patients completing two-year follow-up even. So there is 170 patients who have completed their two-year follow-up questionnaires. 170. So that's 170 uh, who... So, and so two years, so to, to clarify, two years is patients give three monthly follow-up data, don't they? So that would be up to six occurrences of giving their reporting on their health over that, which is, which is a significant amount of time, isn't it? I think. Yeah, we really are starting to to get uh, longitudinal data, and there is so many analyses that uh, that we can do on such long term data. 
Yeah, absolutely. And 170 odd, uh, but you know, by that point is, is, is getting really good. So we're going to come into the, we're going to explore some of the findings in a bit more detail in a second. I just wonder either Michael or Alkin, do you, you know, are there, are there comparative studies out there that, you know, anywhere in the world where they're taking this approach with medical cannabis that you know of? And if so, do, does it do, is the things that we are finding, does it, does it correlate that, you know, are we finding similar things? What do you think? So, yeah, there are a number of studies. In actual fact, there's at least one other registry here in the UK, and there are also registries um, internationally. Of course, we have our own sort of Australian version of T21 up and running in Australia, and there are a number of similar registries in North America and in different countries within Europe. T21 is probably still one of the largest of those. And also in terms of the depth and quality of data, I think that you know, some registries have gone for relatively small numbers, but a lot of information about those individuals. Others have gone for almost just basic demographics on a large group of people. And I think we sort of sit quite nicely of having comprehensive data on still quite a large, not the largest, but a very large sample. One of the things that strikes me when I look at this literature is really how similar the results are in terms of the people seeking treatment with medical cannabis. It's primarily for chronic conditions and in T21, for example, the most common condition that people are seeking treatment for is chronic pain and anxiety is the second most common that is something that emerges in a number of other registries as well. And the good news seems to be consistent stories across these registries that people do experience health benefits from receiving prescribed cannabis. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, it's absolutely the case that it's, it's those types of conditions that we see the most patients from chronic pain anxiety you know that those are the conditions and in fact it's funny isn't it because it was it was um, children with severe epilepsy who got the law changed but actually that's quite a small cohort of people they know not there are not many children who have you know very very severe epilepsy and use cannabis but but that is what changed the law in actual fact it's a much broader cohort of people for a whole variety of different conditions that can benefit from medical cannabis certainly anecdotally that's what we hear now we're starting to uh, to show it through uh, through the projects i wonder Alkin, did you want to talk about the, the types of conditions that you think medical cannabis can be effective for you know even if it's a even if they're smaller groups doesn't matter what types of conditions do you think medical cannabis works for so yeah, as Michael mentioned, definitely chronic pain is the most common cluster of conditions that that we see on T21. However, there's we see quite a lot of people with ADHD, for example, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, OCD, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis. There's, there's really, there really is a large range of conditions that can be eligible for medical cannabis treatment. And this is particularly important for, for rare conditions. For example, cluster headaches, where there really isn't a lot of, of treatments available. So medical cannabis is, is providing an option for people with, with rare disorders as well. That is no treat, that there is no effective treatment for. 
And these people have been finding relief through their medical cannabis treatment, as we will be surely talking about later. Mm, yeah. Well, what, what do we what do we have start to discuss some of the findings that we are that we are starting to show? Because because you're absolutely right, Alkin. There's a whole range of conditions and indications that patients are presenting for when they see a doctor and they and they know that they need to be prescribed medical cannabis. What we what we starting to find through the project. This might be my cue to start talking about data, which is something I always enjoy. So as Alkione has said, we have data collected at three monthly intervals. These are collected using standardized questionnaires that have been developed for use in a variety of clinical settings and have been well validated. To use an example, we assess general health and quality of life using a measure called the EQ5D5L which has been developed for use in clinical trials. It's widely used internationally and has been translated into something like 190 different questions. One of the questions in it assesses its general health, and it's very easy to sort of conceptualise because basically it just asks people on a scale of 0 to 100, where 100 represents the best health imaginable, how would you rate your general health today? We know in the general UK population, when people ask in the general population, the average answer they give is something in the region of 75. In the T21 sample, when they started treatment, the average answer they gave was about 50. So, in fact, quite a lot worse than the general population. At three-month follow-up, asking them the same question, the average answer was about 60. So still not as healthy as the general population who are not seeking treatment, but a substantial improvement over baseline. And, you know, I could go into stats tests and certainly that difference is statistically significant. Using the effect size, which again is a standard measure, that actually um, corresponded to an effect size of about 0.5, which means an approximate half standard deviation increase in that average rating. That is considered a moderate to high effect size and is in fact remarkably consistent with what we've seen across all these measures we have. I mean, I could sit here and go through data endlessly because we have a lot of measures of general health, including the quality of sleep, mood and depression, and quality of life, which I just mentioned. Across all those measures, there are substantial improvements after three months with those moderate to high effect sizes, indicating really quite substantial improvements as assessed by these standardised measures. It's really, really showing some really encouraging results from just from the first three months, right? One of the things I find quite interesting as well was the, the change in, in depression. So we measure mood and depression using uh, the patient health questionnaire, the PHQ-9, uh, which consists of nine items rated from zero to three, basically representing zero being not at all or and three being nearly every day. So we, we ask patients on 
on their mood. And what we, what we found was that at baseline, 45% of all T21 patients fell under the category of either moderately severe or severe depression. 45%. 45%. And then after three months, only 16% of the sample qualified for moderately severe or severe depression. So this shows that a high proportion of patients had now decreased. They had, they had fallen basically down to, to, uh, to another category of mild or moderate depression. This is really, really encouraging news. And, and the, these changes, uh, were sustained at six months as well. So we really are seeing that patients' levels of de- depression are, are decreasing after three and six months of medical cannabis usage. And, and this could be also due to their pain, for example, being, being handled better so that now patients experience less discomfort. That's an important point, isn't it? Because, so it's probably important to mention that we don't just collect data from a single condition that a patient has. Uh, there's, there's the primary condition, but then they can have any number of uh, secondary conditions as well. And as you rightly say, you know, if a patient is presenting with something like chronic pain that you know, perhaps they've had for years, and you know, chronic pain uh, can be really debilitating, that might lead to secondary conditions like depression, for instance. And you know, that's really, really important to, to understand, isn't it, that you know, there are patients with multiple conditions. Hello everyone, it's me, Dr. Hannah Thurger. Apologies for interrupting the show, I promise I won't keep you too long. I wanted to remind you that drug science does not and will never take paid sponsorships or paid ads on the Drug Science Podcast, so don't worry, I'm not going to try and sell you anything. We feel that sponsorships would affect our ability to be impartial and corrupt our evidence-based mission. With that said, we're only able to continue making the show with your community donations. Community donors support our research into the harms of various drugs and discover how they might be used to help heal humankind. We're currently on tour up and down the country at various UK universities to help spread the word about some of our latest developments in drug science. By donating to drug science, you'll be able to attend all of our events completely free and we would love to meet you in person. Additionally, we're going to hold community exclusive events in 2023, including a Q&A podcast recording with Dave Nutt, Joe Neal and myself. So if you'd like to come on the show and ask us one of your burning questions, sign up now to become a member and we will let you know when that's happening. Finally, our most generous community donors will be invited to our prestigious end of year event at the House of Lords in Westminster. Right. Now back to the show. Yeah, oh, that's incredibly important. And I think it's something that distinguishes registries such as T21 from the traditional randomized controlled trials, where a lot of times people with comorbid conditions would be excluded. So, yeah, we find that the majority of people seeking treatment for chronic pain, for example, have a secondary condition which would probably mean they would be excluded from a randomized controlled trial. So I think it's important that we actually get information through registries about how cannabis performs as a treatment for these 
people who seek it and who typically have multiple conditions. I did also actually want to say we were talking about general health and Alki only mentioned findings about depression. We do also ask condition-specific questionnaires, not for every imaginable condition or would have to have a thousand different questionnaires, but for some main ones. One of those is pain. We assess the severity of pain using the brief pain index again, a well-used, well-validated questionnaire, which actually measures two components of pain. Pain severity, which is exactly what it says, and pain interference, the extent to which pain interferes or stops people doing their usual activities. Findings at three months, and in fact at later months for this condition, are remarkably similar to what we were reporting earlier for the general symptoms of well-being, with improvements which were highly significant and associated with a sort of 0.5 to over one standard deviation improvement in health. So we were getting these results consistently across both symptoms and more general measures of health. Yeah, that's uh, that's really, really interesting to hear. And again, really important to understand. Michael, you touched on RCTs there a second ago, and that just kind of reminded me of the question that we often get asked about at drug science, or people often comment on is uh, is that you know can, can we do RCTs, randomized control trials on medical cannabis, or, or or rather why aren't you doing randomized control trials? And you you know you've already highlighted the some some of the reasons why we need to have you know, observational studies like patient registries. What were your thoughts on uh, on the possibility or the resources needed for uh, randomized control trial alongside observational studies? Well, certainly, I think the two should happen in tandem, and I don't want to get into a sort of observational versus clinical trial argument. I think both have complementary strengths and weaknesses. Randomized controlled trials typically have a placebo, so they can control for non-specific treatment effects. One of the issues, perhaps, with observational data is that people select into it, and it may be that people entering a registry because of their previous experience with cannabis know that it's likely to be effective for them. I think the value of the registry, partly, of course, it's capitalising on the fact that cannabis is being made available to people. Yeah, you've mentioned already there's so much we wouldn't know without T21, including what conditions people are using it for. Clinical trials are certainly well accepted by regulatory authorities, but they are very expensive to run. And often for some of the reasons, including the fact that they recruit people who may not be representative of the final sample, it's not always the case that results from clinical trials translate into real-world settings. So it is important, really, to have that combination of both happening. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, what we, we just need to build the evidence generally. And it's, it's absolutely a combination of you know, observational data, 
randomized controlled trials. It all kind of helps to grow and understand, you know, what is the effectiveness, the efficacy, the tolerability of this of this medicine. Let's get let's get back to the data a, a little bit. And now, Peony, you you are the one who who does a lot of the number crunching uh, on a day to day basis. And if people look at people who've looked at our website, might have noticed that we we publish monthly data nuggets, as we call them, which is just bits of information that we are starting to see um, from the data, which, which it hasn't gone through a formal uh, publication, scientific journal publication. It's just information that we want to present. So Alpione, you, on a monthly basis, you, you kind of do this little deep dive into various parts of the data and bring out some really interesting information. What's, what's kind of grabs you there? What's the, what ones are really interesting to you that we've seen over, over the months? Yeah. So one thing that I, I found quite quite interesting recently, I was looking at fibromyalgia. We we have more than a hundred patients now with a primary condition of fibromyalgia, which is starting to develop into a nice little cohort. So I was having a look at the condition to see whether fibromyalgia patients had any different outcomes or how much they have improved through their medical cannabis treatment. And one of the things that I found quite interesting, I, I, while reading the literature, I realized that fibromyal fibromyalgia is predominantly occurring in females. And also it often comes with a comorbidity of irritable bowel syndrome and issues with sleep. So I thought I would have a look at our, at our data to see whether this is actually replicated in, in T21 data. And indeed, it, it was. I, I found that the proportion of patients with fibromyalgia that had a secondary condition of irritable bowel syndrome was statistically significant. It, it was higher than the, than the proportion of chronic pain patients that have IBS as a secondary condition. So we, we really are seeing that the T21 data is similar to other studies out there. So we are able to, to replicate. They're consistent across other studies. Michael, you have mentioned that there is a significant reduction in prescribed opioids among chronic pain patients. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So a lot of what we analyze and what we've been talking about today is actually stuff from standardized questionnaires. So, you know, these are self-report measures of pain or mood or whatever it is. But we also collect information about what prescribed drugs people are using other than cannabis. And really using the same techniques that we've talked about, we can compare what they're using at baseline with what they're using three months later. We were particularly interested in looking at opioids because, as I'm sure people are aware, there's a lot of dangers associated with the use and overuse of those drugs. And cannabis has been proposed as something which may help reduce opioid use. We looked at that by essentially analysing the reports that people had said and turning it into a standard, standard metric of milligrams of morphine equivalents. This is used in research quite widely, and it's a way to compare people who may be using different drugs, but each of which contains some degree of opioids. So that provides a standard measure. 
We actually found that after three months, among chronic pain patients who were reporting opioid use at baseline, their use of those drugs had declined by about 50%. So in fact, there was a substantial reduction. They were on average using half the amount that they had been using previously. Interestingly enough, this result, and that figure of about a 50% reduction has now been reported across a number of different registries. So I think it really sort of shows the potential benefits of medicinal cannabis. It's kind of like, we, when we didn't expect to see that, did we necessarily, Michael? I don't think that was something that came out of the data. I mean, I know you said there are other studies kind of showing that thing, but we were, it's not like we were looking for that, but we, we, we started to notice that as we, as we looked into the data, didn't we? Yeah, and I mean, I think we weren't expecting it because although we, we don't, I mean, people are arriving for treatment to get medicinal cannabis to treat their pain. They are not specifically asking for treatment to reduce opioid use. Some of them may be, but they're primarily going to a doctor to see about getting a prescription for cannabis. There have been some trials which include a component of you know, actively trying to get people to stop using opioids, but that wasn't part of ours. So it was interesting. I think that when we started, we weren't necessarily expecting it. But you know, since then, more and more reports like this have emerged. So it's not perhaps as, as surprising now as it would have been to us when we started. I'm only pausing just in case you, if you do want to ask it, but I don't mind if you don't, by the way. It's quite happy to, to keep going in this way. And I'll pick up from where you just left off, unless there's something you wanted to. As I said, that was a really interesting thing that came from the data. What we've talked about so far is how how positive it would appear that the benefits of medicinal cannabis is on a variety of conditions. But I think also we don't want to kind of just kind of give the impression that you know medical cannabis is this kind of wonder drug that cures all, you know, and you know is better than anything else. And you know that's certainly not the case. We see improvements in people's health. But we don't assume that you know it just it just works everywhere for everyone, which which I don't think is the case. And I wonder what's you know what's your view, both of you, in terms of the limitations of you know this project and the way we're collecting data. And then there's a secondary thing as well. It's really important that we don't just kind of report on or publicise the the positive findings. You know, are there uh, have we seen adverse events? or ways in which cannabis has had a negative impact on people. So, yeah, what do you think? I mean, you're exactly right, David. And like any drug, there are potential side effects or negative effects from using cannabis. I mean, and I will go back to the opioids. You know, there's a lot of issues with the use of them, but we shouldn't, you know, it is the case that there may also, people may experience problems as a result of using cannabis medicinally, and part of T21 is to try to monitor that and get a sense of what is happening. We do ask at follow-up for people to report if they've had any negative experiences which they attribute to prescribed cannabis use. These reports are product-specific, so people are asked for each product they use, whether or not there have been any negative effects, and then they're asked to rate 
how severe any of those negative effects are. In this sample, negative effects were really very, very rare. About 3% of people reported experiencing at least one negative side effect. And in terms of individual drug combinations, again, about 3% of them resulted in a report of a negative effect. The most common negative effects were things like feeling drowsy or having red or sore eyes. And when we asked the people themselves to rate the severity of those, they were all, not all, but about 70% were rated as either mild or moderate severity. So these side effects were relatively rare and not particularly serious. And I think that does contrast with what happens with some other prescribed medications. And when it comes to the the limitations of, of the study, observational studies have come always come with certain limitations. Uh, for example, there is there's no placebo group, there is uh, the data is uh, is self-report, so patients can either I mean Michael, would you like to talk about the limitations of the study instead? I mean I think it is the case that that cannabis or in fact any drug won't necessarily work for everyone who takes it. And we see that even with antibiotics or or things as common and really quite effective as that. And it probably is the case with cannabis as well, where it will be more effective for some rather than others. One of, I guess, the issues with observational registries such as ours are loss to follow-up. If people stop reporting to us, we don't know what has happened. Some people may be stopping because they feel they no longer need to use the drug. They've, They've got better and they've moved on and stopped using it. But if people are stopping to use it, stopping using it because of severe side effects or because it's not effective for them, they're essentially lost to our follow-up. In a clinical trial, people would make a lot of effort, even if the treatment was stopped, to sort of, you know, if you like, track the people down and find out why. But we don't have the resources to do that. And in typical clinical practice, doctors don't do that either. If someone stops going to see their doctor, yeah, it might be for all sorts of reasons, including the just going to a different doctor. And typically, the doctor won't go out there and try to find out why. And that is perhaps the biggest limitation in terms of we are collecting data from those who are most likely to have experienced positive effects of cannabis. It's like the, the limitations are also the benefits. Uh, for, you know, we're comparing, we're comparing RCTs, which, as you say, you know, it's really, really fine level detail, very controlled, but you get a very good compliance and people given the information that we want against, um, you know, not having those tight controls, but it's big data. And we're looking at, you know, looking for trends and, you know, general changes across a broad range of uh, people. And those are the differences. And I think, as you said before, Michael, we, you know, there's absolutely, we need both of those things. We are a drug science. We're obviously concentrating on the observational evidence. 
That's partly because we don't have the resources to do to do very large scale phase two, phase three studies that we would like to do. But it does it did, you know, just is a starting point. It gives us gives us a chance to you know start looking into something quickly as well. You know as well as you know big data, it's much quicker to do observational data. We start reporting on it, and hopefully we start to see some change happening as a result. So, David, what's the plan for T Twenty One? Where where is the project going? Yeah, the well, the, so so firstly, the project is what we see the project as something that should be ongoing. It's not. There's no. There's no kind of finite endpoints to it, and that's on the basis that you know we need to understand more about medical cannabis, how it's prescribed, how patients respond to it in you know in today's world and you know what what kind of impact is it having and we want to continue doing that regardless of you know how accessible it is or what the law says so the project will continue for as long as we can sustain it you know there's no no doubt about that we'll continue to build the evidence we'll continue to publish more and more data and more papers from it one of the key things that we do want to see happen as we often say in the website and the other events and things that we do, you know, we believe that medical cannabis should be available to far more people across, you know, across far more indications and conditions. We want to see the NHS recognise that. We want them to look at the data that we are producing, as well as the data that other other organisations are also doing in, in similar ways or you know in different ways. Uh, so for the NHS to look at the data, to to use that, to to then develop, you know, really kind of better guidelines and um, to broaden the accessibility across more more conditions, so that the NHS will ultimately be subsidising the cost of this medication. Because at the moment, you know, something we haven't talked about in this podcast is, you know, one of the big barriers to people accessing this medication is the very high cost that they currently have to. They have to find, you know, it's all through the private sector. You have expensive consultation fees. You have expensive medication fees. And this is medicine that needs to be taken on a on a daily basis. So what we want the NHS to fund the cost of the treatments. We believe that's that should happen. That's what's right. And the only way they're going to do that is by looking at the evidence that exists. There has been a dearth of that evidence here in the UK for, for a long period of time because of the because of the law, because of the Misuse of Drugs Act, which made it very difficult to be able to collect evidence. But now we're starting to do it, we're starting to produce it. And our intention is, uh, as I say, that we, we will share the data with the NHS, with NICE, with MHRA, and hopefully they will they will use that data in the way that it's intended. So that that's the that's the plan. We're not going to stop, we're going to keep going, you know, and hopefully we're going to get to that point sooner rather than later. I wonder, wonder, you know, do you have any thoughts yourself, Alkirni, there, or you know, what's from your from your perspective, what's the goal that we're we're working towards? What do you think? So yeah, definitely. So we we really want to to keep the project going as long as possible because the the more data we have, the more patients uh, that we have on the project, the the more strength the evidence has. But yeah, we we will be using this data to, to generate the evidence that will save policy, hopefully. We do want to see NHS access. One of the things that keeps coming up on the T21 inbooks is uh, patients saying that they are unable to to afford the cost of their medication, especially given that those conditions are chronic and medical cannabis needs to be taken as a long-term treatment, really. So we really are hoping that the evidence base 
for medical cannabis will be strengthened through this project and medical cannabis will eventually uh, be available on the NHS. That's it, isn't it? That's, that's really what it's about. It's about hopefully allowing patients who need this medicine to be able to access it in an, in an affordable and equal way, I suppose. I certainly agree with what you've been saying. I think another value of continuing with T21 and continuing to accumulate both the number of people in the study, but also the length of time for which they're following, being followed, is to actually build that science base about what types of cannabis treatment will be most effective for what conditions or for which individuals. And everything we've talked about today has been, you know, broadly prescribed cannabis and outcomes, including general health. But I think as data accumulates, we'll be able to start asking much more specific questions about what is the optimal cannabis treatment for someone with this condition. And I think that building that evidence base is going to be a really important thing. It will happen incrementally with contributions from clinical trials and from observational studies. But I do think there's actually a lot more to be learned about cannabis as medicine. And in that way, T21 and similar studies are really important. That's exactly right. And, it, and it, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, we're kind of scratching the surface uh, at the moment with this. You know, there's so much more data and information that we can we can really delve into, so more we can collect. We, you know, there's so much more to understand about cannabis as a medicine. It's not just the, you know, the ratio of THC to CBD. There's much more we can start to understand terpenes and flavonoids and other, you know, other properties of, uh, of the plants that we, I guess we just don't know enough about at the moment. So it's a, it's a, we're playing the long game here. Uh, absolutely. We, it's about more data, more information that we can really start to analyze as we go along. It's going to, you know, it's, it's no, it's no quick win. There's a lot of work to be done. Hopefully we can continue doing it for as long as possible. So I think for anybody who, anybody who wants to find out more information about Project 2021, or as I said, T21, as we, as we refer to it now, there's lots of information on our website. That's right, Alkyone, isn't it? You can, people can go have a look there. What sort of information do we have, Alkyone? Do, do you want to briefly explain that? Yeah, so on our website, we have a list of our participating clinics. There's At the moment, there's 11 clinics that can register patients on, on T21. And the patients need to, to make an appointment directly with the clinic. And after that point, they just can take part in T21 and complete the questionnaires every every three months. Yeah, exactly. So, so you'll find all that info on the website. It will explain how people can become a part of it. And we hope that people we hope that people do because the more the more people who participate, the more data, the more analysis that we'll be collecting. I want to say thank you so much, Alkioni, Michael, for contributing to this podcast. It's been very enjoyable, I have to say. Maybe we should do more of this. I don't know. It's uh, it's quite a good idea, actually. I hope this gives um, people who are listening to this podcast. I hope it gives a flavour of uh, a project, why we're doing it, what we're starting to find. As I said, we've got lots more to do. So do keep looking at our website for information. We'll have the monthly data nuggets. We have our monthly newsletter, which also explains more information about you know what, what we're seeing. 
do keep following us and we hope to make a difference very soon. Thank you, Alkiani. Thank you, Michael. Gina, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.